Hey everybody, we are super pleased to announce our new sponsor, Marvel Strike Force. Marvel Strike Force is a mobile squad RPG that allows you to battle with your favorite team of superheroes and supervillains in a fight to save the universe against threats like Doctor Doom and Apocalypse. The goal? Power up your favorite characters to complete missions, unlock gear and other resources, and beat other players in PvP modes such as Alliance War and Real-Time Arena. And the best part? Marvel Strike Force just reached its six-year anniversary, which means free stuff when you sign up via our unique link in the description. The anniversary consists of weekly events and bonuses. Just complete each event, and you'll receive special awards and skins. Make sure to log in each day and every week to take advantage of all the new characters that are being released specifically for this event. This will be Marvel Strike Force's most generous event to date, so don't miss out. If we have received a unique promo code for every new user, please follow our link in the description and use the promo code MAXPOOL, M-A-X-P-O-O-L. Again, anybody uses that code, it is unique for all new users. Check it out. Once again, thank you so much to Marvel Strike Force for sponsoring this episode. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Welcome to Board Gamers Anonymous, episode 82. This week, the boys are back from Gen Con 2015. We're going to talk about the games we wanted, the games we played, and all the fun we had this week on episode 82. You're listening to a proud member of the Dice Tower Network, dedicated to bringing podcasters together for the greater good of gaming. It's sort of like Voltron but with better lip-syncing. Find out more at Dicetowernetwork.com. Welcome to Board Gamers Anonymous, the podcast about board gamers and the insane fun we have at the table together. This is Chris. This is Anthony. This is Daniel. And this is Drew. Welcome to the table, everyone. We're so glad to have you join us post-Gen Con 2015. As you could hear, my co-hosts are a little hoarse after many, many days of Gen Con wonderment playing games, meeting people, and maybe meeting a, a few too many people that maybe passed on something other than 20-sided dice. So we are going to have a very quiet recounting of Gen Con and talk about the great games that we played, all the fun <laughs> that we had together and the people that we met. But it's not just going to be this one episode. We are going to give you a little taste for this episode, and then for the next three or four episodes, we're going to come back to it and talk about all the different things. We don't want to pile up right now. We're going to kind of break it down a little bit. So with that said, we want to remind you of one of the great things about Gen Con has to be Cool Stuff Inc. is running a contest with the Dice Tower Network. And as part of that network, we are happy to give you an opportunity to pick up $50 from Cool Stuff Inc. and then be entered into a contest as part of the Dice Tower Network to win $500. Now, this is really easy to do. 
Now, if you listen to our episode 81, which was, if you like Seven Wonders, try out these games. Now, in that first week, we talked about how we had a survey on our website, BoardGamersAnonymous.com. If you go there and check out episode 81, you will see a survey link. You click on that. It's super quick. It's all about what you want from this podcast. It gives us information to make better choices in the future so you're more happy what you're listening to. Now, for this week, which is an additional opportunity to get into this contest to win money. So with that contest, we want you to go to BoardGamersAnonymous.com and check out episode 82. On that episode page, you will see information on how to enter a second time for this contest using Twitter. So check that out on BoardGamersAnonymous.com, the page for episode 82, and you'll find all the details you need. Now, if you haven't already filled out the survey and was entered into our first opportunity to get into the raffle, go back to episode 81 and you'll have a second chance. Now, with that said, let's get on to the news. Shout it from the tabletops. Sir, you're going to need to get down from there. Shout it from the tabletop. You got to make up for us. <laughs> Be loud. Okay. Will do. A little bit of Gen Con news. Obviously, we're going to spread this out over a couple of weeks, but you should know the numbers from Gen Con. These are record numbers. Largest number of people ever, 60,000, 61,000 actually. Paid attendance. Well, most of them paid. Some got in on press passes. Biggest in years. The interesting thing about that is that is double the number of people that went to Gen Con just six wow. years ago. The attendance has doubled in yeah, that short of a 9% time. Nine percent from last year. It's just just booming, and uh, the number of exhibitors was a record number. Companies uh, having exhibits over four hundred. They also had their trade day. Prior to the convention, that was sold out. That was the day for educators and retailers. So everything was booming. And they really had a great year for their charity of choice, the Julian Center of Indianapolis. Um, they raised 38500 plus for the Julian Center. And uh, we were at one of the uh, fundraisers for them. Okay, the guys from NerdNet, they had a, a, a wonderful uh, raffle and auction that we uh, we were there for. So really booming. I know there's going to be a, a lot more next year, so we better get our hotels early this time. <laughs> okay, guys? All right, Drew. One of the seminars, though, I do want to tell you, one of the seminars I went to was this guy who was an IP lawyer, specialized in intellectual property rights. His seminar was titled A Lawyer Tossing Packs of Magic Cards. If you ask him a really good question, he'd throw you a pack of magic cards. I got two cards out of it. <laughs> but... Um, the reason why I bring that up is I love IP, and it seems like the board game hobby is always awash in legal wranglings. Two things came into the news just this past week. One had to do with Dungeons & Dragons. A company called Sweet Pea Entertainment had acquired the movie rights to Dungeons & Dragons way back in 1994. Now, that was when TSR was still independent. Wizards of the Coast bought them three years later. But they did not buy the movie rights. They had already ah. been sold. Wizards was bought up two years after that by Hasbro. So when Warner Brothers wanted to make a major motion picture, they had to go to Sweet Pea Entertainment to make this deal. And you may wonder, you never heard of them. Why weren't there any movies? They never made any, any Hollywood releases in the 20-some years since then. So Hasbro accused them basically of just squandering the movie rights. They just let their license lapse. And if you remember... 
this is the problem with all the Spider-Man movies. Why there's one every two years is because you got to keep making movies with the IP or you lose the rights to, to use them. Sweet Pea gets a little bit of the pie, but after this movie is made, Hasbro is going to have, through Wizards of the Coast, they're going to have all future movie rights. So that's settled for all time. Very entertaining. Come for the lawsuit. Come Stay for the, the movie. Yeah. Yeah, the D and D two thousand movie was horrible. Was... I remember going out there and going to see it and just going, "What is happening?" There was two of them, right? Yeah, there's one released in theaters. I mean, not widely, and it failed horribly. It was just terrible. And I remember there was that what mazes and monsters one, but that was more of a, you know, like horror movie. I remember online. that fondly because I remember watching that and my buddies and I would, we would like name everything in the movie like, okay, that's lawful evil. That's, uh, you know, we'd be, oh, and that's a plus two sword. That's that, was, be. that was we Tom Hanks' name. breakout role that warned us if we played <laughs> D&D we would become crazy and try to kill ourselves. So, you know, uh, clearly that was a thing. <laughs> <laughs> so that's the last we're ever going to hear of Sweet right. Entertainment. Hasbro's got the rights, so there probably will be a lot more D&D movies coming out. That's the news for the week. And now, our Acquisition Disorders. Acquisition Disorders? That's crazy! Only needs the base game. Nothing else but the base game. The base game and the expansion. See? Nothing else. Just the base game and the expansion and the promos. The base game, the expansion, and the promos, and, of course, the upgraded components. Why wouldn't you have the upgraded components? So, the base game, the expansion... All right, so let's talk about what games we're looking forward to, what add-ons we want to bring to our games, and what new things we hope to see at the table really soon. Anthony, why don't you start us off with what you're looking at? All right, so I could talk about all the games I did buy (laughs) and have not yet played, but that would be like a two-hour podcast, so I won't do that yet. Uh, So my goal is to play all those, and we'll review them in the next couple weeks, because, oh my God, did I bring home too much stuff, but... As we wandered the show floor, uh, there were a number of games that are not yet out or that we got to try or that we got to look at that I'm very, very eager to see more of. Probably the one that was most exciting and yet mildly terrifying, because I don't know how it's going to work, is Tail Feathers. Jerry Hawthorne, the designer of Mice and Mystics, was at the Plat Hat booth just hovering over like this case full of the miniatures for this game, very excitedly explaining how the game's going to play to anybody who would listen. And it was a lot of fun to, to watch him kind of show you how everything was going to work. But after like maybe 15, 20 minutes of him describing the game, uh, I think we looked at each other and we said, this is going to be a pretty complex game. Uh, I'm excited by that because I like complex miniature games, especially the two-player combat style. It reminded me a lot of like you know a mix between maybe Battlelore and Attack Wing. And that sounds cool to me. Plus my Mystics. And the miniatures are crazy awesome. And they're all painted up, of course. And they have these, you know, the pivoting. They rotate on top of the, the, the little stick there so they can tilt different directions. They have all these different mechanics. And the measuring sticks, like a little twig. Like it's oozing with charm. And it's going to have the story from, you know, that universe that we all love so much. So I don't. I don't think it matters if I play this one first. I'm absolutely going to buy it when it comes out in November. Uh, I think they said it'll release at Essen and be available like a month later for us. So that one is going on my game shelf regardless of how it <laughs> plays. Uh, it looks pretty awesome. Yeah, there's a really a lot to love yeah. here. As you said, Anthony, the detailed miniatures are outstanding. The little mice and the rats actually pop off the birds. So I'm assuming there's going to be some situation where you can kind of switch those riders up. And 
man, that flight system where the bird can tilt in a multitude of directions, I haven't seen anything like that from any of the other flight systems that we played previously. So I'm really looking forward to that. What do you think, Daniel? Yeah, uh, I'm a huge fan of Mice and Mystics and watching him describe this. And Gary got super excited as he was talking about it because you can tell he's been working on it constantly and it's, it's become a passion of his. Uh, and it looks really exciting. I do have a little bit of a worry about the uh, the difficulty curve there. Right? So Mice and Mystics is a very kid-friendly sure. game. I don't know if that'll translate to Tail Feathers, given how many mechanics he seems to want to work in. We'll have to see about that. I mean, things like you can have mice fighting on leaves and then a bird come by and cut the leaf free <laughs> and then swoop and attack them. There's a lot of things that can happen. It's all very cool, but a lot happening is hard to keep track of. And I think for me, the most telltale thing, right, is... Mice and Mystics happens right inside this story that an older mouse is telling to his kid, right? So it's very, like, in a sense, right, reaching out to the younger generation, whereas Tail Feathers is supposed to happen in the recollections of two veteran soldiers' hmm. mice remembering their time in the Great War. And uh, maybe that's a subtle in uh, indication that Tail Feathers is going to be more appropriate for more storied gamers, people who are more experienced. Um, but either way, it's definitely going to be worth a buy. I, I never saw this as a continuation of the Mice and Mystics, even though you know there's a way that you can integrate it with the expansion where they, they go above ground. I asked him about that, and he said, yeah, you could basically play this on that board above, like they're flying above that. You can integrate the two, but it's a it's a whole different world. But it gets into pure miniatures, which is why I didn't get as excited mm -hmm. about it. You know, I'll stick with Mice and Mystics. Thank you. And that's exactly why I got extremely excited about it. So <laughs> <laughs> he sold me after like five minutes, and then he kept going, and then I was drooling. <laughs> and then I said, why can't I play this right now? Why am I not an Essen? As you say, you can see some of the pictures on Board Game Geek if you go there. They've got pictures from Gen Con up with the painted min uh, miniatures and everything, and, and Gary back there smiling. Why does they do that? Why does it the way the gen, the way the um, convention season is laid out? They announce the game at Gen Con, but they don't release it. Well, until Essen's the big trade show, so even though Gen Con is either creeping up or surpassed Essen's numbers, Essen is still the industry standard, and I think that's going to be that way for quite some time. Yeah, and, and Gen Con is the place where companies do business with the consumer directly but Essen is as right is more mm -hmm. of a trade show right so and really the customer for someone like plaid hat is not the consumer directly it's yes. the retailer right that's the people they're selling to so of course they're going to release at a trade show they're going to want these people who are going to be selling the product to be able to sit down and see what they think and if it's worth carrying their stores because they're the ones they need to sell all right so uh Daniel, why don't you tell us about your acquisition disorder this week? All right, well, I've got two. The first one's more of a curiosity, which is, I don't know, my fellow role-playing game players have probably heard about this, but there is a company called Artisan Dice, and they make lots of custom dice um, you know, out of exotic woods or whatever. Uh, but they've probably got their most exotic material on list right now, which is Mammoth Ivory. And what? they will make you a D20 out of Mammoth Ivory. Oh, come on. It is $250. But I kind of want one for absolutely <laughs> no rational reason whatsoever. I just want to have, like, it's, and this is my Mammoth Ivory D20. Like, when would you ever use that? 
I would feel so bad about rolling it because nothing would seem like worthy of a what 20 odd thousand year old preserved chunk of ivory <laughs> being used so what's what's the advertising hook own a piece of prehistory yeah pretty much yeah <laughs> and it's just it's it's essentially the backstory to what would be a magic item in a D- Dungeons and Dragons game, right? Like this, hmm. these dice were carved from the teeth of a long extinct giant species, right? And here it is in a box for two hundred fifty dollars. Uh, well, I guess the ethics of it aren't are you know is, is not a problem because it's not like the mammoth is an endangered species anymore. So, okay. It's well past endangered. Well <laughs> past endangered. A couple thousand years past endangered. Or it could be super endangered uh, <laughs> since it's, it doesn't exist anymore. So, <laughs> uh, But yeah, I think, but more seriously, um, so as I'm going to talk, when I get to the, at the table, I actually played my first flying frog game. Uh, from Flying Frog this last week after Gen Con, actually. I got some gaming in between now and then, which seemed impossible, but I did it. Uh, And I really enjoyed it, and the things that I thought were going to catch me up, right, the fact that they use pictures for their, instead of illustrations and that sort of thing, I thought, ah, it's going to be kind of hokey. But actually, once you get into it, it's really a lot of fun having that sort of real-life depiction. Uh, and it's kind of fun knowing that when you see that guard dog card, that, oh, yeah, that's probably just one of their dogs. One of them just has a dog and said, hold still, and took a picture, and boom. My next Flying Frog game, I think Fortune and Glory is the one I'm leaning to right now. But they all look pretty cool, so maybe our listeners could uh, point me in a direction there. What Fortune and Glory game should I get, guys? Let me know. What Flying Frog uh, but or sorry, what flying <laughs> hint hint nudge nudge? Which fortune and glory game? Now, yeah, what flying frog game should I get you guys? Let me know. Is it fortune and glory? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I think it might be. That's it. Looks pretty cool. Looks pretty cool. Maybe I'm just thinking about hunting ancient artifacts because someone is now making d20s out of Jeez. them. But you know, well, you know they're all cursed, right? Because that's what happens. Yeah. Well, yeah, maybe it could be blessed mm. too. You never know. Like, but either way, it's got some sort of karmic attachment, right? There it's you got go. To. All right, Drew. What about you? You know, at Gen Con, Arctana released a fascinating game concept. I mean, it really caught my eye when I saw it. Tesla versus Edison: War of Currents. Um, I thought, what a great idea for a game. But it did receive mixed reviews, and I didn't want to talk about that game anyway. But I wanted to talk about its designer, Dirk yeah. Niemeyer, and his next project which is a series of games called Chronicles. The first one is Origins, which Artana will release next year. It takes Rob Davio's legacy game system and goes it one better, I think. Um, Niemeyer's system is called the Echo System, where the actions you take in one game of the Chronicles series will echo or carry over to the next and to all future releases. I have no clue how that's going to work, but I'm dying to find out. It's uh, Dirk Niemeyer's Chronicles Origins, released by Artana sometime in 2016. All right. Well, my acquisition disorder this week has been Daniel's acquisition disorder for quite some time and a game that he picked up. Now, going to Gen Con, it's hard just not to lose your mind 
with literally everything that you want in your hand right there right then take my cash and i gotta say and we'll talk about gen con in our feature a little bit more but the game of the con at least from all the talk that was going on was blood rage so uh you know despite kind of like circling around it when it was a kickstarter and at the cool mini or not booth like ah that's really cool maybe i don't know it there was just so much talk about blood rage that it's finally become a major acquisition disorder they had a hundred copies of the core set at gen con which was a little odd because their backers did not receive blood rage yet and some people were a little you know perturbed about that some other people were pretty cool about that but blood rage was around and people were playing it and i think actually even anthony got a chance to sit down and play at least a little bit of it right anthony yeah i happened to stumble across a demo of this i think they had one demo out and i just happened to be walking past it as people were standing up and i was like don't mind if i do um and then immediately there's like 10 people surrounding us being like next demo and I'm like, <laughs> were they were they uh, rageful a couple people okay. were getting pretty rageful because it was they were about to close the the exhibition hall and they were like are you gonna get another one in and the guy's like well if these guys finish in time and so they were like daggers in the back of my head <laughs> finish the game um this is a really cool game like i've heard people describe it as like a mix between cosmic encounter and a handful of other games and honestly the way that some people describe it didn't sound that interesting to me but having played it now, it is significantly more interesting to me. Um, the card drafting, plus the ability to jump in on everybody, plus the ability to affect the combat like the same way you would in Kemet with the cards, plus rage management, plus Ragnarok coming and destroying all your stuff all the time, plus the fact that you actually want all your guys to die, which is fun because usually that's the part that stresses you out. Man, it just does everything so nice. cool. This is now on my list, too, and it wasn't before. So thank you, Gen Con. <laughs> Somebody had the foresight, the great and magnificent foresight to back this game. Yeah, I yeah. Who that is. <laughs> I think that's how Anthony lost his voice. He was blood raging so much at Gen Con. No, but in all seriousness, though, this, but in all seriousness, as soon as I get this game, weekend at blood my rage, place, blood rage, <laughs> multiple blood, blood rage at Daniel's place. <laughs> all right, let's get out of here before it gets any more crazy. And now, at the table with BGA. So, welcome to our table. We're going to talk about four games that we recently played and let you know if it's a buy, if it's a play, if it's a dodge, or if it's an absolute burn. It helps to let you know where you should spend your money, where you should spend your time, and when you should get the heck out of that table because that game is no good for you. All right, so let's talk about what games are hitting our table this week. Daniel, why don't you start us off? Well, uh, as I mentioned in my acquisition disorders, I played my first Flying Frog game game. <laughs> this That sounds weird, but you know what I mean. Actually, just these last couple of days, and it's Dark Gothic. Now, those of you familiar with Flying Frog's products will know that Dark Gothic is a semi-cooperative deck building game taking place in the a touch of evil setting which is this sort of monster hunting i guess american colonial mm -hmm. setting right so you've got a bunch of monster hunters and a bunch of little monsters and then some big monsters and 
your goal is to twofold, right? You want to beat all the big villains, three of them, uh, before they can accumulate enough shadow cards to beat you. And you want to get the most points in the process of doing that so that you win amongst your fellow monster hunters. Uh, in a sense, it plays like an average, sort of a middle point between Legendary and DC Deck Builder, uh, which is surprisingly enjoyable because they took what I think is the good part of each of those games and left the bad part out. So I don't know how Legendary has, what, two different tracks running, one for bad guys, one for good things, right? And they've got all this stuff happening on the, the board at the same time. It makes it way more complicated than it needs to be. And there, Flying Frog with the uh, Dark Gothic game, uh, they, they follow more in the DC deck builder system. There's only one line, and that includes both villains and allies, well, minions and allies and gear and events all happen in that line. So there's only one thing to keep track of in that respect, and that makes gameplay much faster, much easier, and way easier to teach. So I really like that. Um, but they do have this sort of shadows thing that the villains can do where they can build up enough cards that they've burned through various effects that they, they win. The, the forces of darkness win. Uh, and I think that is something sort of like the legendary masterminds, right, where they can, they can have their plot win the day uh, and everybody loses. And it's nice having that outside pressure on the game. Uh, and I will make a special note here that the way that Flying Frog does their uh, graphics, I know, bothers some people and other people love it. I think it's fantastic here. All the photos and the cards are really great and very evocative. Uh, and it kind of fits that sort of, that almost campy but almost serious monster hunting movies from back in the day, you know? The, the uh, movies, yeah. <laughs> right, and it's perfect. And it plays so great because of that. And now I had a chance to play this both with the bare minimum game, right, with the basic game, uh, and then with every supplement and expansion thrown in, including the Colonial Horror expansion. And I will say, definitely get the Colonial Horror expansion. Uh, as it is, the base game doesn't put much pressure on the Shadows deck, which is the way that the villains can beat you. So technically, yes, the villains can win, but it doesn't seem very likely. Right? There's not much that's going to happen to you there. Colonial Horror introduces a lot of new ways the villains can screw with you, uh, including lightning bolt event cards, which burn cards from the lineup and add themselves to the shadow deck, uh, as well as roaming cards, which do kind of what the legendary villains do, where they move closer towards the end of the track each turn, and if they reach there, they immediately go to the shadows deck. And this means that there's a lot of way where your Shadows deck can start growing, and the villains are now actually serious threats rather than just ways to get points. Uh, the biggest difference for me playing through it both ways is that in the first way, I was sort of taking my time to get points, and the only reason I would go after the villains was because they were worth a lot of points by themselves. And I was like, aha, big fish, right? But with Colonial Horror shuffled in there, uh, suddenly we had times where we had to go after things we didn't want to go after because if we didn't, everyone would lose. And that makes a good semi-cooperative balance, I think, there. Right? You've got this, I don't really want to do that, but if I don't, we all lose. I'd prefer to do that because it'd be better for me individually, but I can't make that choice right now. And then sometimes you'll be like, well, I could kill that guy, but he won't help me as much as that other card. And if I wait till next turn, then someone else has to kill that guy or else we all lose. 
So I guess I have to count on them not wanting to lose, and I can get away without doing anything this round. And I did that a few times too. Um, so I definitely say get the colonial horror. It also adds some little what they call it, the. It also adds divider cards, which makes it way easier to find stuff in the setup, even though the setup is already pretty simple, kind of like DC Deck Builder, more like that than Legendary. And as, as for the supplements, there's three out right now, Curse of the Werewolf, Smuggler's Den, and Forgotten Island. Of the three, Smuggler's Den is the most essential because it adds more roaming cards, and I think those are just nifty because the more pressure the villains put on you, the better the game's plays i think the other two are nifty in their own way if you really like it give it a shot they're like nine dollars a piece so might as well get them all just to see how they play out but yeah so that was my experience playing dark gothic with both the bare bones and the expansions i really like it i definitely say that dark gothic the colonial horror expansion and the smuggler's den i would call them all a buy uh forgotten island and curse of the werewolf i'd call a play see if you like what they add all right anthony what do you have for us all right i picked up a bunch of stuff and but one of the games that was on my radar at the top of the list and this was actually the first booth i went to when i got there probably because it was closest to the door i came in but also because (laughs) they had such a limited quantity of the game uh and that's new york 1901 from blue orange games um I don't think I would have known this existed, except it kind of jumped up the hotness on Board Game Geek in the weeks before Gen Con. Uh, I think they did a good job of getting the word out there to different people, and so it caught my eye, and I like the theme. You know, we live in New York, so I've seen all these buildings a hundred times, so it's always fun to kind of play games where you're building them. But more importantly, it's that kind of middle ticket-to-ride weight, and it's very colorful. It's got the same artist as games like Lewis and Clark, So it's very evocative of that era and that kind of colorful, fun family feel. Um, But in that middle weight of Ticket to Ride, and Ticket to Ride's great, but when you only have a couple games like that, it does limit your options with the family. So I was excited and was hopeful that this game would be good. So we got it to the table at Gen Con. We actually played it in the mall on, I guess, Geek Chic had just brought a bunch (laughs) of tables and littered them throughout the mall. Um... So we took one, and then, of course, people would walk by us and ask us how the game was a lot, which is cool because we love meeting those people, but it was just funny because we were, like, in this little display case gaming in the middle of the mall. But the game itself was, like, I read the rules as we were setting it up. It took maybe 10 minutes. Very simple mechanics, very straightforward. Uh, You're going to take a card every turn, purchase the lot that matches the shape of the lot on the card and the color, and then you can choose to build... I'm one of the lots that you currently own. Um, and when you buy a lot, you're going to put a worker on it. So the first few turns of the game, you're just going to buy a lot and then build on it pretty much every time. But later in the game, you might buy multiple lots and then build a larger building. As the game goes on, you can destroy existing buildings and build new ones on top of them. And you score points pretty much anytime you build anything. So that is all very simple. There, there's no tricks to it. It's pretty straightforward. A lot like Ticket to Ride. Take cards, build trains, done. Um, the interesting part is the bonus mechanisms that come in play later. There are like these landmark buildings, and there are going to be however many players, there's that many out, and you can only build one of them, and they're very big, so you have to plan for it, but also get the one you need, um, and they're worth a lot of points. And then there's also uh, bonus cards. One set of bonus cards, you're going to pick a handful of them, and it'll just give a street name and then a number of bonus points, and if you have the most skyscrapers along that street, you get the bonus. 
Um, the other one is a different end game scoring mechanism, and it comes with five out of the box, which is awesome because you're only going to use one, so you have different ones every time. And then at Gen Con, they were giving out these extra bonuses, um, like a, a promo pack with the Flatiron building, and it actually had more cards. I think there was two or three more in that pack. So that means to me they're going to keep expanding the game, which will make it more and more replayable, which is awesome. And those were all very different. The one we had was have the most bronze buildings out, and everybody can get that bonus. So the more bronze buildings you had, the more bonus points you got. And that was interesting because bronze is like level one, and you kind of want to destroy those and build the higher level buildings. But when you do, you're going to get fewer points from that bonus. So you had to decide, destroy, keep it, what's you know what's the point trade-off? Um, I feel like that adds a lot of strategy to the game as you move forward, which I think is important for the middleweight because players like us would get bored if literally all you were doing was building buildings on these spaces. Very fun, language independent, very quick and easy. I feel like a child could learn it pretty quickly, but maybe not at the higher level. A lot like Ticket to Ride, where anybody can play it, but if you're going to master it, you need a little bit more. We had some discussions back and forth on whether it was slightly more weighty or slightly less than Ticket to Ride. I don't think we agreed on that, but I think it's in that ballpark. I know I mentioned Ticket to Ride a lot. It's not It's not really like that. It's just the feel of it and the weight of it and about how long it takes to play. So very happy I purchased it. Uh, I would say if you're looking for a game in that weight range or if you like this theme, it's a buy. At the very least, it's a strong play. I, I definitely want to play it. When I saw it demoed, it actually struck me as... Um... What a, what a great part of a theme night it would make with a, another game like Tammany Hall, where your 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 theme is New York City through the ages, building New York City. The Tammany Hall as the immigrants coming into the city and flexing their political power, and then you jump to 1900, where you're you're building up New York real estate. Um, it'd be fun to go through the history of New York that way, game by game. I'd love to play it. And New York 1901 is a, is a fantastic game. I think you said pretty much everything that needs to be said about it, Anthony, but then that's not going to stop me from blathering on for a few <laughs> seconds about it as well. Uh, just to throw in my support there, definitely a play, possibly a buy for me as well. It's on the on the cusp there, and since you already have it, and since I don't really get that many games out to the table, and I've got a huge bag full of them to work through it's not on the top of my list but great game yeah it's a play for me too it definitely fits that ticket to ride area where it's a family slash gateway game i would really like to see this game raise its profile you know to the ticket to ride area just because it's such a cute and little unique type of game whether it's a little heavier or a little bit lighter, I guess it depends on you as a gamer and what goals you happen to have out at that time and who you're playing with at the table. But that's a mark of a good game, and it's a play for me. All right, Drew, what about you? The game we played all together was Tragedy Looper from Z-Man Games. It's a game that's, that has had so much buzz. It was the first chance that we had to play it. It struck me as Clue meets the 12 Monkeys, okay. if, if you can get that. That's an <laughs> Mashing That's up an expansion. Those two things. <laughs> the monkeys, I mean. <laughs> the 12 monkeys clue. But don't play it when you're tired out from Gen Con. <laughs> I had trouble staying staying awake, but that not the game's fault. It's mine. you you got to have your wits about you in this game because the interchanges between the players and the, the mastermind, those exchanges are, are always critical. They reveal some important clues to the central mystery if you're sharp enough to catch it. Because most of the time, the players, even though all the other players are cooperating against the mastermind, 
are not going to be able to talk about their their suppositions. You you can't talk amongst yourselves most of the time. So if you fail to put the pieces together of this murder mystery in time, for example, who the would-be killer is, you're going to be yanked back to your original point of time and have to start from the beginning hoping you remember all the clues you gathered in your first time jump. Um, I, I haven't seen any little pieces of paper or any, any forms to fill out like they have in Clue. I think this really needs it. Otherwise, I can't keep everything straight. It's really hard. But that's the glory of it is, is you got to use your brain in this and you got you know, to put two and two together. Um, but the best part of this game is the capacity to create your own scenarios. It, it comes with a number of them, a lot of replayability. But with people writing their own scenarios, it's infinite replayability, really. And to me, that's what elevates Tragedy Looper to a strong buy. Um, you really need this because you're never really going to get tired of it. It's always going to be fresh. What do you guys think? You played it with me? Oh, man, I love this game. So Dark Gothic might be my new favorite deck builder, but Tragedy Looper is a strong contender for my favorite game right now. Like, might permanently unseat somebody in my top ten for that. And almost certainly is going to permanently unseat somebody in my top ten for that for that uh, that honor. It's absolutely amazing. And it's one of those games where you just listen to how the rules play out. And as soon as it clicks, you realize how unbelievably amazing it is, right? Just all the different ways things could go, all the complexities and the intricacies, and just how perfect a game it is. Uh, so even though when we played through it, we actually managed to work our way through the, uh, the, the sort of initial scenario rather quickly, which was largely a product of everyone being exhausted and just sort of you know, taking the quickest path. Uh, but, you know, it worked out. Uh, <laughs> can't complain there. You can see, even when, you know, you have a pretty short run of it, how long this game can run, how complex it can be, and how meaty it really is. I mean, you should take that also with an asterisk, right? That could be a caution for you, right? If you don't like deduction games, don't, don't even try, because this is one of the more complex deduction games, I think, that's out there right now. Um, and if you don't want to risk spending hours trying to figure out who who's wearing what hat when the door is closed, and not a game for you, but it is, it is fantastic. I would definitely say like almost a moral obligation to play it, and I would strongly recommend you buy it. My only caveat is understanding that there are people who might find it to be too weighty. This is a game I've owned for a while, and it's been really tough to get to the table because there are two 50-page rule books, and if you own the game, you basically have to figure it all out and be the mastermind. And I, I was always tired, so. Um, of course, I we played it when I was tired, so it made it better. <laughs> so, uh, it was a lot of fun, though. I know some people have said playing the Mastermind's not as much fun. I had a lot of fun because you get to mess with people, and I got a good straight face, so I don't I don't yes. give away information. Well, that's buys all around. I enjoyed the game too. It was a lot of fun. It definitely needs the right group of people. It needs the right focus, and absolutely positively the right mastermind. I was a little disappointed it wasn't more keeping with the artwork and that kind of anime, supernatural, time-bendy kind of thing that we're used to. But it was a solid, really solid deduction game. 
and it's something I'm looking forward to playing. And hopefully at some point, I really want to play the Mastermind because that seemed like a lot of fun. And there is some more of that supernatural stuff that you like from anim- the, the sort of anime theme in the more complicated scenarios. So there can be, I think, alien beings in the game sure. and that sort of stuff. And so I think once you get more comfortable with the basic game, we were playing with training wheels on. And once you take those training wheels off, you get to, you know, pull some sweet tricks and <laughs> jump ramps and have aliens and angels and all sorts of weird things and, you know, go back in time 12 times to figure out what's happened, so on and so forth. So Very cool. Yeah. All right. So the game that I was able to get to the table, and it was not an ordinary table. Anthony joined me, and Daniel was playing this at another table, and our, I guess our host was Ted Alsbeck, who was teaching us favor of the pharaoh now this is a dice rolling game and what it initially reminded me of was machi Koro in its weight and its execution and you'll roll those dice and you'll try to make certain combinations now the harder the combination like rolling five of a kind will get you a better tile but typically you're going to be able to get some tile that you'll add to your own tableau that'll get you a special ability or give you an additional die on your next turn. Now, as you're rolling and the game goes on, you'll move up this collection of special abilities and be able to add special dies to your dice pool. Those special dies will help you obtain even more and more complicated collections of dice that will give you more special powers to your your tableau. Now, what you're trying to get to with the whole game is you're trying to get seven of a kind. Now, when you first start off, it seems impossible, but once you build your tableau up, it's not really that hard. And we rounded that game up, and I think the first person at our table rolled seven ones. I rolled, I think it was eight fours, and then Anthony rolled, I think it was nine fives, and then somebody rolled sixes, which was amazing. It's a quick game. It's a simple game. The theme is completely pasted on, which is not a problem at all. And that that's me saying that. And it's the type of game that you can really sit down and play with anybody and just say, like, look, just, just roll the dice and see what you get. And uh, we'll see what the choices are as part of that marketplace. And then you can roll better the next time. So a fun game, a light game, an entry-level game, a gateway game can be played with gamers or family alike. I'm sure the gamers are going to appreciate the tableau building, and it has a number of dis- different it has a number of additional tiles that you can swap in and out. So, you really could kind of have a different gameplay each and every time. And then there's these little kind of strips that determine what dice get what tile and those flip around too so almost an endless number of combinations and not to mention the dice rolling this game is a buy i was kind of skeptical at first when i sat down at this and ah dice okay paste it on theme but it was actually fun quick and it plays with a lot of people so if you see this one out, I would definitely recommend picking this one up. Yeah, this was a, a pleasant surprise. Um, I see it, I'd seen it on Board Game Geek going in. I knew they had a copy there, but when we met uh, Ted and he was like, "Hey, let's play," you know, this is the new game we have coming out in a couple months. I had not heard much about it, so I was very surprised uh, how much fun it was. Now, this is a reimplementation of an older game that I had also not played, so that might be part of it. Um, that game was To Court the King, 
And I guess I shouldn't be too surprised because it's Tom Lehman, so the guy behind Race yep. for the Galaxy. So he knows how to make a solid game with simple mechanics, and it's going to expand so much because even just in the base box, you're getting more than double you know, the number of tiles you actually need to play the game. And there was this awesome app what it would randomize everything for you so you could basically set it up without having to figure out the tiles on your own you just look at the phone and boom there you go awesome yeah i i really enjoyed it i think for me it sits closer to play than buy just because i think the msrp is something like sixty dollars and that's a little steep for yeah chris whoa that's a little steep for what it is no matter how replayable it is and randomizable it is that's all very well and good but even so it's pretty yes. light. Um, and $60, I expect a meteor game at that price point. So I would say I'd, I'd buy it if it hit around 40 or below. Even 40 I'd be kind of dragging my feet. Um, but it is a great game, so definitely sit down and play it if you get the chance to. And then, you know, make your own assessment. And if you see it on sale, buy it. All right, so that's everything for At The Table. Now on to our feature review. <laughs> And now, BGA's feature review. We wanted to talk about Gen Con. Now, as I mentioned in the intro, we'll be talking about Gen Con over the next couple of weeks, but we wanted to give you an overview of the different dimensions that make up Gen Con. So each of us is going to talk about a different area and hopefully give you a feel and give you some insight about what Gen Con was about, what was there and available for you to see, for you to play, for you to interact with, And most importantly, if you haven't been to Gen Con before, hopefully after this episode, you'll have a good feel for it. As the weeks go on, we'll talk more specifically about the people, the publishers, and the games that we were able to play. So to start off with, Drew, why don't you take us away with the trends that you noticed for Gen Con 2015 and in the future? All right. One thing I noticed, diversity and inclusion are talked about have been talked about in this hobby, they're being talked about even more through seminars. Diversity is being practiced in, uh, especially in RPGs now. Inclusion is being seen in uh, the people that are there at the convention. Um, The board gamers, and I spell that with a Y, um, very much in evidence and, you know, a part of all the activities, uh, differently abled players are there. And far more women than you would ever expect were in attendance and actively participating. Everywhere there were women involved, except in one place. In all of the podcasts that I saw, there were no women. Guys, by Gen Con next year, we gotta be we gotta have women on our team. We gotta be inclusive too. That's something that's a goal for us to work on. Um (laughs) they're there playing, they're there. In the companies, they just need to be on our podcasts. That's something I'm looking forward to in 2016. Something else I noticed were playmats. Now, playmats are always a standard thing about conventions. Companies use that for large, like giant copies. Yellow always has their giant size playmat for King of Tokyo. But now game mats are becoming a part of retail. Companies are creating them. For example, Gale Force 9 created a playmat for Firefly for all its games and expansions to to fit all these maps together. It's just one game mat, and you can play all their Firefly in one place. It's a beautiful mat, um, and it's available in retail. So 
I think that's going to be more and more. At the yellow um, section of the vendor hall, I saw a, a very nice mat of King of New York. Now, it's scaled perfectly for the tabletop. It's not a floor mat. It's something that just seems to be just right. Because really, whenever you play King of New York, doesn't it feel like the board is just too small? There's just so much going on. You need something bigger, and it's perfect. And I, you know, nosing around and talking, I got the idea that Yellow is actually considering retailing that game mat in the future, possibly as a, you know, a special edition, what have you. But it would be great to have one of those for playing that game. More and more game mats for board games. CCGs have had them for a long time. Now it's time for the board games to step up. And something else I noticed, another trend um, that Stonemeyer Games was uh, doing, and I think we're going to see more and more. Stonemeyer was there with a really cool hotel meeting room. It had windows on three sides. It was like, you know, you never see the sun otherwise, but these guys had a room with three sides of windows. The one thing Stonemeyer Games didn't have was a booth in the vendor hall. There was no presence there whatsoever. So they didn't sell a single game. But Jamie Stegmeyer and crew probably did more to strengthen the Stonemeyer brand than having a booth in the vendor hall. I think we'll see more of that where it's just like you guys said, Essen is the trade show. That's where they go to make money. Whereas I think more and more they're going to focus on selling the brand at Gen Con. Um, you know, I think Jamie Stegmeyer did a great job with that at this convention. I think we'll see more of that in the future. They're not going to worry about selling. They're going to worry about selling the name, the brand does. Um, and those are some of the trends I noticed. All right. Thanks, Drew. That sounds great. Anthony, what about you? Now, everyone knows that Gen Con is about games. So what new releases did you see and what did you think was most interesting about that? Yeah. I mean, I um, this is one thing that I was – Super excited about. And I know some people are a little underwhelmed this year compared to previous years, which is understandable. I think this is not a transition year necessarily, but it's definitely a year in which last year we saw so many great games, and next year we're probably going to see so many great games. So this year was a lot of expansions. I was We were joking about this on the way home, and it was it's almost the year of the re-implementation. All these different second editions, third editions reimaginings of games coming out you know you talked about favor of the pharaoh that was another game my big acquisition disorder out of this was tail feathers that's a similar system uh, my big buy last year was imperial settlers and that's a re-implementation imperial assault re-implementation even fantasy flight's big announcements were like bringing old games back with runebound third edition fury of dracula and then expansions for all their stuff and i don't really have a problem with that necessarily because some of these games are hard to find you know I don't want to spend $100 plus on a copy of Fury of Dracula, so I will gladly take the new edition. So there's a lot of stuff like that coming out, and I, I feel like I definitely felt that at the convention. It's a year where people are trying to... They're carving even smaller niches for themselves. One great example was uh, Flick 'em Up, which I know didn't debut at Gen Con. It, it debuted earlier this year, but it was it had a big presence. They had a bunch of big tables out, and people dressed in cowboy hats and flicking stuff around. And I actually picked a copy of the game up because it sold out pretty fast. But talking to Z-Man and F2Z, they were saying that they're going to do a whole line of these types of games. Like an entire publishing house within F2Z is being created to make dexterity games. That's crazy. But it's cool and people are excited about it. So I'm going to keep seeing kind of this 
continued uh, segmentation and fragmentation of these game companies. You know, now all that aside, there were still plenty of games that I was interested in, and I did buy way too many of them. Uh, <laughs> my list got much longer than it needed to. New York 1901 was at the top of that list. So I was very excited to pick that one up. I picked up Discoveries, which is a uh, dice game implementation of the Lewis and Clark a uh, game that came out last year from the same designer and artist. I wanted to get a copy of Champions of Midgard, but that one was pretty hot and people picked it up pretty fast. I was not interested right away in Mysterium, although when it sold out super fast, I had that weird human urge to buy it because it was rare. I think they only had 100 copies a day and people were not super happy about that. It was sold out before the doors even opened on Thursday. So that was a tough one for a lot of people. I'm trying to think what else I picked up. There's so many games in my bags on the way home. So it was it was a fun convention, a lot of great stuff. The re-implementation of the Game of Thrones card game, the second edition. I'm still working my way through the rules on that one, but it was definitely hot. And I know they sold out a couple times, and then man managed to magically manifest new copies of it. Um, but I think by the end they were out. And that's that's one that we played through half of a game <laughs> twice um, got a good feel for some of the changes in the deck building and in the melee mode with the different roles um, still need to dig a little deeper and see what that game is really like with the new stuff but uh, it seems like they hit a home run with that one it's good timing too with where the show's at so game wise i could see why people are underwhelmed a little bit i was excited maybe it's just because it's the first time i got to go in there and be basically a kid in a candy shop but there's a lot of interesting stuff and the prevalence of like more dexterity games, more solo games, which I thought was awesome, and more detailed uh, expansions for some games that maybe in the past wouldn't have even gotten expansions. Uh, it's exciting for me because it means more of the games I like. So I have plenty of stuff for the upcoming At the Table segments. You'll be hearing from me, Mucho, <laughs> in the coming weeks. As soon as you get your voice back. Yeah, well, hopefully by next week I can speak normally again. <laughs> It's one of those things that we're almost spoiled at this point. And, you know, go back 10 years and release all the games that came out this year, and it would have been amazing. (laughs) But compared to the last two or three years when, like, such big stuff came out, like, there was no new Star Wars game this year. So people are like, ah, okay, Fantasy Flight. (laughs) Okay. But, like, last year we had Imperial Assault, and before that Armada. I guess both of those were last year. And then X-Wing. Like, there's so much stuff, and it's so big. And I guess... You know, these companies didn't give us quite enough things to burn our money on this year. For me, it was still, I feel, a very strong year for a lot of good games. um, Because everything I played, I really liked. So these games are good. It's not like they were just hyped. They're good. And I'm excited for the fall because there's so much of this stuff that we played, like Blood Rage and Favor of the Pharaoh and a lot of these other games and Tail Feathers that aren't out yet. So the rest of the year is going to be awesome. All right, Daniel, what about you? Yeah, so, you know, uh, when we went there, you got to meet a whole bunch of people. And let me tell you, the people at Gen Con were just terrible. They're the worst human beings. Now, it was it was a wonderful group of people, really. It was. I get kind of, you know, I get kind of anxious around large groups. And, you know, over 60,000, that constitutes a large, pretty much any metric, I think. Uh, and yet, everywhere I went, it was not long before I felt at home. And everyone was happy and really, you know, quick to share a seat with you and guide you through a game and sit down and just talk to you and share what their feelings are about the hobbies or, you know, what, you know, 
where to get lunch today, right? You know, where the lines were shortest. Um, I do, you know, wish there were fewer people there primarily because parking was an absolute nightmare. <laughs> maybe fewer cars, more people. I don't know. Maybe we can get like a bus system running next year. We'll see. Uh, but uh, it was really a fantastic time. And this is my second convention having been only to Dream Nation from Double Exposure before this. Uh, and the increase in scale here was extraordinary. Uh, but yeah, we got to meet just a whole bunch of people, and that was a lot of fun, right? We got to meet the rest of the Dice Tower and other podcasters, which is sort of cool because, you know, we're kind of the small community and we're all part of the Dice Tower network, or at least, you know, all the, the Dice Tower people are anyway, obviously. And it was nice to finally be able to put faces to names and voices, right? And to finally be able to, you know, shake Tom's hand after he brought us on the network so long ago. Uh, so that was a lot of fun. Got to meet a lot of game designers who, it's just, it's a different experience having a game picked to you by the designer because you can see the love in their, in their eyes and hear it in their voice when they describe it, right? So when Gary went through uh, Tail Feathers with us, just... The more he went into it, the more excited he got, and that got me excited because I could see how much he had put into this game, right? And that just made me want to put something into this game, too. Probably my money. Uh, you know, also, it looks like an amazing game, so whatever. No harm, no foul. Got to meet a bunch of the game production companies and, you know, meet the guys who run those and talk to some of their PR people and hear what they think about the market and where things are headed, which was, you know, a really nice experience, especially seeing as, you know, they've all got their own perspectives on it and they're all sort of going in slightly different ways. So it'll be cool to see how those play out. So, you know, all of that was, you know, very fun, stars in your eyes kind of stuff. But by far for me, the most wonderful people that I met there were our fans. And that's not just sucking up. That's primarily because I didn't realize we had any, um, <laughs> you know, you see, you see numbers on a screen saying, Oh, you had 10,000 downloads this month or whatever, but it doesn't mean anything real until say Aaron and Rhiannon stop by the dice tower booth while you're doing your little time there just to see you right not to see the dice tower to see board gamers anonymous and that was awesome and you know what they were stopping by somebody else walked through the hallway and just sort of you know bga yeah woo! <laughs> and then you know kept walking really fast so you know didn't really get to talk to them but you know hi to, to you a little bit late but whatever uh when we came out of the live show somebody pulled us aside and showed us that they had us on their phone and they always listened to us told us to keep doing what we're doing and, you know, not only was that a nice little ego trip, it's just really nice to get that sort of, you know, validation. Because a lot of times, you know, we're sitting here in separate rooms recording on our own mics at odd times of day. And it kind of feels like you're just talking to a wall sometimes, right? You know, there's not really anything being accomplished and that you might as well just be you know, reciting great speeches from history or, you know, whatever, delivering soliloquies to the bathroom mirror and having faces to put on the audience and that sort of verification that there really are people out there listening to us. And, you know, they may not agree with us on everything and maybe they don't, you know, they don't always get a chance to listen, but they do when they can, right? Even that just means a lot. Uh, so that was, that was probably my favorite moments 
I guess several different moments, but my, my favorite collection of experiences from Gen Con was this realization that there are really actual fans out there, not just, you know, p- people who work for companies who have PR guys who listen to us because it's their job, but actual fans. And that, that was huge for me. You know, I, I got to tell you about my, uh, my favorite meeting with my idol, so to speak, because not only is he a, a good designer, but he is one of the best blockers I've ever read, a man with great heart, Ignacy um, from Portal Games. Lovely man, um, just as, as sincere and, and dear a person in person as he is in his writing. He doesn't edit himself. He doesn't have any translator. So his his blog is broken, just as his language is. But that's it's just so personable. It's great meeting people like that in the flesh, uh, getting to know them. And uh, wonderful man. That was my fanboy experience. Yeah, I think there was a lot of fanboy experiences for us. As podcasters, we get to meet with a lot of publishers and designers and it's kind of easy to be a little, just the slightest bit jaded. But as soon as we got down there and we started shaking hands with people, Tom Vassell, Z Garcia, Sam Healy, Eric Sumner, Jason Levine, Jamie from Secret Cabal, as we said, Ted Alspeck, Eric Lang, Ignacy Chevrachek. I mean, there's just so many amazing people, the publishers, the designers, the people who work on these games. I don't think, Danny, you mentioned Flying Frog Games was at our hotel. We were at a hotel in the middle of nowhere, and we're just having breakfast. And there comes, you know, 20 different random people from Flying Frog Games with their shirts on. I'm like, all right, so this is happening. This this is a thing. And, <laughs> so, and here I am playing a game where they're all on cards the next <laughs> week. Like, oh, yeah, that guy. I remember that guy. And, oh, yeah, she was really nice. That's cool, man. Yeah, okay, I'm going to use her to kill the the witch now. All right, cool, we're good. <laughs> I remember she liked her bagels buttered. Huh? It makes a lot of sense. I see how that all connects together. So we met so many outstanding people, so many great listeners and fans, and we were just blessed. You know, meeting Jamie Stegmeyer was awesome, and he was like one of us, and he's like our guy, and it's cool, and it's just an amazing experience to play these great games again and again and actually to meet the people behind it and you know to meet fellow podcasters and video casters and rodney from watch a played and marty from rolling dice and taking names and just we can go on for endless time and as i said we'll talk about this from the weeks to come but it's just just amazing the number of people Chris, you didn't mention them all. Keep going. Come on. You got once you started, you got to finish the list. Well, there was sixty-one thousand plus people there. So, <laughs> all so right, you might just want to fast forward to this next hour or two of your podcast. Let's start but, with uh, Let's start with Andrew Adams. He was a great guy. <laughs> you know, I bet there probably was like a couple people named Andrew Adams. That's a pretty like. If your name is Andrew Adams and you are at Gen Con and you're listening to us, let us know. Let us know. <laughs> that would be awesome. All right. So I wanted to talk about Gen Con as an event. So as Danny was saying, BGA hasn't been to a lot of cons together. We've been hitting the double exposure events here in Morristown, New Jersey. And we've talked about these in previous podcasts. But Gen Con was this big, explosive, massive event and it was beyond expectations it blew out pax east that anthony and i had attended the previous year and in general you know 
when we started BGA, it was about two things. And Tom kind of pointed at this saying, you know, what, what are you guys about? And when we were at his live show, I thought about it and I said, well, you know, first off, when you tell people you're playing board games, you get a lot of funny looks for people who don't play them. And then when you tell them you were playing them until, I don't know, two, three o'clock in the morning on a weekend, you get a lot more funny looks. So it was that type of a hobby that you did want to keep anonymous. You didn't want people to know that there was a closet that was full of games and you enjoyed it and it was fun and you had other people to play with. So there was that anonymous element to our gaming. And then second was the fact that, you know, this is one of these hobbies that you could really get sucked into. So going to something like Gen Con that had 61,000 plus people that were just like us, just gamers who loved to game, had acquisition disorders, had completionist disorders. What a phenomenal opportunity. And the idea that there was a convention being held in the U.S. at this, you know, at this level and this size and at this professional quality was amazing. Now, the convention itself that was held in Indianapolis had this really extraordinary convention center that housed, I would say, probably about 75 to 80 percent of the activities going on. The rest of these, as Daniel was mentioning, were held at the outside hotel surrounding the convention center. So, you know, it was one of those things where coming into the convention you knew you couldn't do everything and man was that not emphasized when you walked through those doors and saw that tremendous gigantic manufacturers and publishers everywhere and you got to see all those tables and everything going on and then you just happened to go in a hotel for another event and there was dozens of events going on there so the convention center was nice it was well laid out there was cosplayers everywhere. Uh, my favorite happened to be a steampunk Dr. Oz gender swap, which was amazing. And it flowed really nice, although there was some problems because, once again, it was 61,000 people. And in particular, waiting online for our passes on Wednesday night, man, there was a line that was crazy. So if you're going to order Gen Con passes in the future, pay the $10 to get it in advance. But when you walk through the halls to be able to pick up the games, it was nicely spaced out. The big publishers had their own areas. And in particular, I wanted to point out a couple of things. First up, Upper Deck had a whole section for their Predator deck building game. This is part of the Legendary series. And they actually decorated it in, I would say, kind of homage to the first Predator movie. So you had this kind of like jungle theme with the Predator music playing in the background. Flick 'em Up had cowboy hats for those who were playing. Mysterium had a booth that was kind of creepy and dark. But you could see it from a distance. But if you got close, it, man, it, it really reflected the game. And I think that that type of effort and care that went into the layout of the convention really added to the wonderment of our gaming. Now, Daniel talked about how everyone was kind of you know friendly and nice and welcoming you to the table. There were plenty of tables to play. There were some big games, and that was a lot of fun. And Drew talked about this earlier. The giant convention games that you can't see anywhere else. What a fun time. And on Sunday, they had family day. So they actually opened the convention up a little bit more, and people could buy a Sunday pass. And you saw a lot of gamers who maybe they gamed a little bit, but they weren't your hardcore hobby gamers coming in there. And a lot of families and a lot of kids, and a lot of kids dressed up as Pokemon, which was adorable. 
and it was just really a nice time. Now, Indianapolis is going to have to do something for the future because Gen Con was kind of bursting at the seams, and the idea that a lot of events were outside the main convention hall kind of limited some of your sightseeing and access to other events. So we'll see what 2016 has to offer all of us gamers in the future. But in all, I would say Gen Con as a convention was well laid out. It was clean. It was neat. There was food available. The bathrooms were plenty. The lines were a little long, but not too crazy. The staff, especially the volunteer staff, was amazing. It wasn't cumbersome at all. They kept the... The aisles clear so you could get through. A lot of different merchants and vendors, and especially the artist gallery was outstanding. It was something that I hadn't gone to previously in any other convention. And I remember Tom Vassell talking about the artist alley as something to check out. And I got to meet so many outstanding designers, some board game designers, and in particular John A. Esch, who I really loved his artwork and picked up a bunch of prints. And, you know, this one-on-one connection with people was something that you couldn't really put much into words. And it was well worth the entry fee for the convention. And I know you've heard this before and you'll hear this again, but if you can make it out to Gen Con, you should absolutely do so. It was an outstanding convention with some outstanding people. And I'm looking forward to going back in 2016. Final round. So, since we've been talking about Gen Con the whole time, I thought for a final round we might talk about Gen Con one more time. But all the the impressions that we have of Gen Con 2015, let's look ahead. For final round, what one thing do you want to see or not want to see in next year's Gen Con 2016? Now, my choice is escalators i want to see more escalators to the second floor there are a lot of seminars (laughs) there are a lot of miniature events there are a lot of uh, there's some big games on the second floor there's some bathrooms on the second floor clean bathrooms unused bathrooms there's so much to do um if you're if you're looking for a varied convention like i did that it was just hard to find a way to the second floor oh by the way the the overhead hallways to the hotels if you didn't want to go outside in the heat you had to go to the second floor so please install some more escalators by next year what do you guys want to see or not want to see next year daniel what do you want to see next year or not see well i can tell you that i definitely don't want to see you whoever it is got me sick (laughs) i will find you i will track you down nobody should no coughing people no like nobody's sick just, you know, hand-washing stations everywhere. That'd be great. Uh, no, uh, but, yeah. But in seriousness, what I'd really... I mean, that actually might be kind of useful. I'm torn between saying I would really like to see, like, better maps to get around. Because sometimes we'll just point you into this giant hall and be like, it's in here, here, here. <laughs> it's okay, but I'm looking for one table, right? It's not a big booth. Because I like to spend my time with a lot of, like, the independent developers, the smaller companies, that sort of thing. And they don't have giant 30 foot tall banners waving around with you know robots walking in front of them and whatever everybody else has they're just at table number 472 in the far back corner and when you walk in the door right you go am i in the right place 
am I in the wrong place, right? Am I ever going to find them? And you end up missing the whole game, right? Uh, so that, that's probably my biggest one, better orientation. Cool. Anthony, how about you? Oh, man. Uh, more games? No, they got one of those. <laughs> um, I, the thing I was interested in is uh, one of the random lines I stood in the first day, the Fantasy Flight line, they actually gave me a ticket for one of the games I was waiting for, a Game of Thrones card game, so I could leave that line and come back later and go stand in a different line. And I don't like standing in lines, but it reminded me of Disneyland where you can get that like fast pass. Oh, yeah. if, if you game it just right, if you have the pass, you can actually do a lot more in a single day. I would love to see more of that where people hand out tickets or do a lottery or raffles, whatever it ends up being. So you don't just, if you look at my tweets from the first day, it was me standing in a line to stand in a line to stand in another line to stand in a final line. And it was fun because I was hanging out with cool people. Um, but if I had tickets, I could go stand in the line whenever I wanted to, like maybe after I ate breakfast. Uh, now, this is a minor first world complaint because I was standing in lines to buy cool things. But <laughs> um, Fantasy Flight actually was pretty good. They they did that. They were very communicative about where you were in the line and what was sold out. And then if you were demoing their games, they had somebody walking around with snacks and water for you. So... It was like some first-class service in the Fantasy Flight booth. So the Disneyfication of Gen Con. It is a theme park, so why not? Yeah. Perfect. Chris, how about you? Well, I talked about this a little bit earlier in our feature. I really appreciated the extra step that publishers took in kind of theming a booth around a particular game. So sometimes when you're walking up and down the alleyways... You see publishers, but you're not sure exactly what they're bringing out, what they're showing off. And the Mysterium booth, the Predator the Legendary card game, the Flick 'em Up booth, there was very few booths like this where the whole booth was themed out in that game. And I really, really think that's what this, this convention's missing out on, having the games really be the stars of the convention I would love to see publishers just take a little more time, a little more effort, and a little more space to make these boots, 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 <laughs> boots, two boots. boots. <laughs> these boots are made for walking, and that's just what they'll do. One of these days, these boots are going to walk right over. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> you. So I would love to see more theming of special areas wrapped around a game. Ah, interesting. So, Drew, all of these things for the future, as future Drew, will these things come true? Oh, all of them definitely will be. Okay. And I, I actually have one more item that I think all of our listeners, I hope you're looking forward to seeing at next year's Gen Con, and that is a live production of Mary Poppins, the board game musical. Written by yours truly and uh, by Ambie Valdez, one of the winners of Dice Tower Song Contest. Excited to be working with her and scared to be performing it live next year. But I hope <laughs> okay. you're looking forward to it. It's going to be a thing at next year's Gen Con. Mary Poppins, the board game musical. Okay. And that is our final round. Well, before you go, Drew, don't forget that last episode, Future Drew, visited us. So don't forget to go back to that episode and let us know what we did because you did so therefore it happened so i don't even have to mention it because it happened but therefore if i didn't mention it, it wouldn't have happened i would it wouldn't have happened if you hadn't reminded me so thank you I'll all right you don't don't forget to wind your watch <laughs> <laughs> the tragedy loop has been avoided cool 
All right, so that's everything for this week. Please keep in contact with us on Facebook, Twitter, BoardGamersAnonymous.com. That is currently our two possible ways to enter into the Cool Stuff Inc. contest, our Patreon account, and rate us on iTunes and Stitcher. Until then, this is Chris. This is Anthony. This is Daniel. And this is Drew. And we'll save you a seat in Gen Con 2016. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.